Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I saw the photo of, of the three of us with Piketty and I said, I need Erica. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a full house here today. Helen Thompson, Chris Bickerton, Hugo Drochon and Chris Brooke. I edited <laughs> a short piece about my new book on oil. Went to bed early and uh, read my book. Your own book? <laughs> no. Do you have to say your bed, the book I that you wrote? No. We're speaking after the big overnight news, which is that Donald Trump has fired James Comey as head of the FBI. That news broke within hours of us talking. I think it's a bit dangerous if we go down that wormhole. We might not come out the other side. So we're going to park it and come back to it. Also, it could change in the next 24 hours and we don't want to be too out of date. So instead, we're going to go back one last time, for now anyway, to the French presidential election and talk about what we think a Macron presidency might mean. And then we're going to come back to the UK because we haven't all got together since the local election results. There's a lot to catch up on there too. But Hugo, if we start with the results this weekend, we'll come on to Macron in a second. But first, maybe briefly, there are two stories about the Front National and um, how Le Pen did, one of which is that actually in the final vote, she underperformed quite significantly. Even the, the notoriously accurate French polls were slightly out. Macron got up to 66%. On the other hand, in historical perspective, she did a lot better than her father. And more than a third of French voters have now crossed the barrier that allows them in their own minds and in fact to vote for the Front National. Is it a good news or a bad news story for her? She doubled her vote compared to her father back in 2002. So almost 11 million people voted for the Front National. So that's very, very worrying. On the polls, I think it's important to remember that the French polls closed the day before. So it looked like there was a strong dynamic in favour of Macron specifically after the, the debate. The debate exactly. Yeah, so he could have moved that, in those last three or four yeah. days. The most optimistic poll I'd seen was 65. He got 66. So that was a surprise. But I think the way it is now, the political configuration has changed. I was back in 2002 or in 2017. And we've had last year, we've had Brexit and Trump. And I just think the political configuration is different. This is the kind of, if we talk about the left-right divide is no longer as strong as it used to be. We've moved maybe to a political configuration, which is center versus extremes. So in that sense, it does look like a strong victory for the center, a stronger one that might have been expected. So if you accept that there's been a shift in politics and since last year, then it looks like a victory for the center. If you look at it from 2002, then yes, it looks like the Front National is doing a lot better. But the future of the Front National, I think, is very much in doubt. Just but this there's talk that she's going to rebrand. I mean, everyone is now saying we need to rebrand. We need to not be a party anymore. We need to be a movement. We need to have a new name. Yeah, that's what she. That is what she said. That was what she said, and actually, here in her defeat speech, um, that she would go, she would go because she knows that there's a lot of tensions. There's factions within the Front National. On the one hand, she has her gay advisor, anti-European Florian Philippot, and then she has her niece Marion Maréchal, who represents the older strand, the Pujadis strand. And who said that she's taking she said, a break? From she politics? said this morning that she was retiring. This, she had already said this during the election. This was known that she would take a break. She's going to get a real experience, perhaps trying to mimic Macron, a real experience in working for a bank, working for a bank. I'm not sure she's working. 
working for a bank. Um, because she sees that the road is blocked till 2022, I think it's very, Marine Le Pen said already that she's going to run for 2022. So she can't see a way forward. But the recriminations have been terrible. Straight away, Jean-Marie Le Pen, after Marine Le Pen lost, accused Florian Philippot and said it's his fault that we lost because this whole EU thing is not the way forward. Marion Maréchal actually is not that anti-European. It's not the main dividing line for her. It's more identity politics. It's more to do with Catholicism. Chris had that lovely um, image the last time when he was going for a run in the Bois de Boulogne and all these cars were going past with all these supporters for La Manif Fortus. And that was a strong support for Fillon with Sans Command. But one of the political reconfigurations that you might have on the right would be a link between Marion Maréchal and Sans Command. I think that's what she's trying to do. I think the the Front National is is in this for the long game. Um, that's the game they're playing. So if you take a, a long-term perspective, France has slowly, steadily evolved in the direction of the Front National. This changing of politics around the sort of the centre versus the outsiders, there may be a victory for the centre now, but the whole debate about the winners versus the losers of globalisation, the Front National has been talking about this for some time now, that then has become the basis for political debate. They're, they're setting the terms of the debate. Compared to her father, I mean, when her father got to the second round, there was this moment where all the journalists who'd been based in Paris went out into the provinces to try and find out who on earth were these you know, National Front voters, as if they were some sort of bizarre you know, species of people. That's not the case now. It's still very difficult for somebody who's, I suppose, maybe in their sort of late 30s and onwards, upwards, to not think of the Front National as somehow associated with this kind of neo-Nazi, violent, very, very racist party that has these connections to French Algeria and all of the kind of power military activities of, uh, of earlier years. That's still the party for them. And Marine Le Pen tried to detoxify, as she put it, but she was never really able to win over people like that. For younger people, I think they associate the Front National with something else. Um, so there is a kind of transitional period there. I can't imagine that when she sits back and reflects on, you know, the last few years in politics and, and this election, that she can think anything else than our time has maybe not come right now but we're in a pretty good place and we have to rejig things. We maybe have to create some alliances, maybe change a few names, do a bit of sort of rebranding. But the basic political core of our message has become the terms of political debate in France. I'm not so sure we can think about what's going on in France in party terms so clearly because it seems to me that one of the things that happened is essentially that the, the reformist wing of the Socialist Party is decamped to Macron. So you could actually tell the story of Macron without talking about the movement, although there clearly is a movement, it has taken a group of people who are on the reformist wing of the Socialist Party who've got absolutely fed up and exasperated with the unreconstructed, as they see it, left wing of the Socialist Party, and they've reinvented themselves. So then the question becomes, well, what does the centre-right now do in the face of the problem that it faces, where it has lost an election that it absolutely should have won, given it was facing a president that had an unpopularity rating of 4%, well, actually it was a popularity rating. Of, an unpopularity uh, rating of 96% on that so, measure. So they were not able to get themselves into the second round, even under those conditions, which is, you know, it's is, is astonishing. Is, yeah, is, is so, actually astonishing. Also looked at it from the what's happening to the National Front perspective, it, a clear problem in that 
there is no easy way for France to cope with its economic problems from the position which Marie Le Pen has been starting from, and that is to be straightforwardly, or appear to be straightforwardly, anti-Euro. Even if you think that's the right way for France to go, there has to be a convincing, credible story about how France is going to get out of the Euro without causing all kinds of economic problems. I mean, this isn't Brexit. Brexit is light years more straightforward than what France leaving the Euro would be. So, although I take Chris's point, on this overwhelming practical problem that France faces about how does it manage its economy in relation to being in the Eurozone, then nobody's got any clear answers. So the one spaces for the centre-right to reinvent itself as a Eurosceptic party, and I mean that in a quite literal sense of sceptical about the Euro, and do work on thinking about what actually moving beyond that might mean. Now, I think that that is a space that, for a number of reasons, it might be difficult for them to go into because they have in the past been very committed to making the Franco-German alliance work. But that is the next space, I think, that is now opening up in French politics. So then a lot, obviously, is going to depend on the Macron presidency. So if the Macron presidency is, among other things, this group of reformists, the reformist wing of the Socialist Party, now around a charismatic young leader with a the, the liberation that comes with a movement, a personal movement that's not a party. But the policy space is roughly the same as it was for Hollande and for the government of which he was a part. As I see it, I may be wrong about this, but it looks like the key test is going to be around employment and his ability to get more people into work, but also to get the French people to think about work differently. Has he got a chance of doing that seriously in the next five years? I uh, am very sceptical about many of the things that Emmanuel Macron has, has been saying. It's not a coincidence, I think, that the day after the election, the day after, you started to get some very heavyweight voices from across Europe, especially from Germany, saying France has got to deal with its deficits. Fiscal consolidation, which is the phrase of the European institutions, is now being thrown around as the real task of the Macron presidency. Now, that was not at all the message that was coming through in his campaign, which was really always focused on giving everything to everybody or something to everybody, doing a bit of something, but doing a bit of something else. No real sense of trade-offs, of having to make hard choices. So I think the task for Macron, yes, is, is to kickstart the French economy. Hollande was never able to cut the unemployment rate, and that was his big commitment, and he didn't achieve it. Now, one of the reasons is that he was boxed in by the Eurozone and by Eurozone policies. Now, Macron has some pretty dramatic ideas for political reform of the Eurozone. Now, he can say that. He promises even more than Hollande did five years ago. I don't see in any way how this can be translated into policy. This requires German agreement, which isn't there at the moment. It requires fundamental uh, treaty change at the European level, which nobody has said they're willing to do. So I think Macron is promising lots of things. I really don't see how he can deliver. And just a final thing, I think what's carried him through up until now has not been enthusiasm around his policies. The main reason why people voted for Emmanuel Macron was because he's not Marine Le Pen. Now, this logic of lesser evilism as the basis for sort of elections has carried him through, but it's it's very, very limited in terms of support across a presidency. By winning 
the second round, he has already fulfilled his mandate if you voted for him for that reason. Hugo, defend your guy. Yeah, I have a slightly more positive take on this, obviously. Um, <laughs> if you were disillusioned now, that wouldn't have lasted long. No, I think there, and I think it was interesting going back to the discussion we have with Piketty. I, I mean, I'm not a Macronist enragé. I think there's certain aspects of it which I find interesting and the way forward. There are other aspects which I have concerns about. So we are in a context where growth is returning to Europe. And I think it was interesting also that one of the things that Piketty did pick up on was how France has quite a substantial output deficit, which it could address um, within itself. The question of unemployment is the big question. So obviously, growth is going to help. The unemployment has been kind of coming, starting to come down a bit. And I think there is a change here in how unemployment is conceived between the Hollande and the Macron presidency. Jean Pisani-Ferry is the economics advisor to Macron. He's well known in France for having defended a Nordic style of social democracy. And I think the, at least the vision that Macron has is one of the reasons at least it's argued that there's high unemployment in France is because the labor market is quite rigid. And the idea is to say, okay, well, we're going to deregulate the market, but the state is going to step in more to give a social um, safety net. And that's, so is this what flex security means? Yes, this is one of the big things that Macron wants to do. He wants to nationalise or universalise social security. So before it used to be run through the social partners, there was kind of a slightly more corporatist model. But that corporatist model of the economy is over. The main unemployment... Yes, Chris is disagreeing with me. Um, the main Actually, so is Helen, but anyway. No, I'm not actually on that no. particular... So the question is, he's been derided as... He's been derided as the Uber candidate, so the, the kind of English equivalent of the gig economy. And that's Uber as in the, the taxi firm, not yes. Uber as in... As in the Uber mentioned. The, uh, <laughs> the Uber mentioned. No, it's the gig economy, right? We know there is 50% unemployment for use in the banlieue. The question is, well, do these people work? And often the only chance that these people have is to get a job in the gig economy. Of course, this might lead to inequality, etc. And there's a ways in which the Macron platform could be reinforced in that way, which is why last time with Piketty, I was asking him, is there a way of combining the Macron idea of nationalizing social security with a more type of platform of um, a universal basic wage? It's not clear that's actually going to work because the Socialist Party came together and came up with their own platform which is Macron kind of sympathetic. They're trying to see if they would be able to join an alliance with, with Macron. This is one of his big challenges. So the prognostics so far suggest that he might have the biggest party, but he would have to have some kind of coalition where that would come from probably more the socialists. Also, the Juppé line, the kind of more centrist of the right, apparently want to break off. And one of the big challenges he's going to face, which is also where Hollande failed in many ways, is can he reform the labour market? If he tries to go ahead with that and there's going to be massive protests in the streets, then it's going to be kind of dead in the water before he even starts. I mean, I think there are two questions for the Macron presidency. One is what Hugo just said, which is whether labour law can be reformed. And the usual response in France to labour law legislation is action on the streets. The second is, and in some sense for the long-term vision that Macron has, the most crucial is, is what can you do about France's budget deficit? Until it is under 3% and looks like it's staying under 3%, there is not a cat in hell's chance that anybody in the German government, at least so long as Merkel is in power, is going to listen to anything that Macron's got to say. That's the thrust, as Chris said, of what Merkel said yesterday. The problem here is, is, is that France just struggles with its budget deficit. It doesn't mean that it's something that is necessarily desirable for France to have a budget deficit under 3%, but they are the Eurozone rules, and they are rules that Germany now insists upon. If we look back to the period 
of the Eurozone. There is only two periods, one from the first three years, 99 to 2001, and one from 2006 to 2007, when the French budget deficit has been under 3%. Everything else that Macron wants to achieve in terms of reforming the Eurozone is dependent on the credibility of doing that. Now, in one sense, he's in a significantly better position than Hollande was when Hollande turned towards fiscal austerity, not in 2012 when he won, but in 2014 with the um, Val government, because the French budget deficit is about 3.4%, I think, at the moment. So there's not that much further to go. But it's got to get under there and it's got to stick there. And if it does over a year or so, perhaps two years, then there might be some possibility of German change. I don't think there's any guarantee that there's, there's German change, but unless he does that, then the whole basis on which he wants to change the nature of the French economy, which is dependent ultimately on a different kind of Eurozone, just falls away. One of the ironies here, I suppose, is that certainly from the outside and from a country like the UK, people liked Macron particularly for his open embrace of the European message, the European flag, the European project. But the irony is that that's probably the thing that boxes him in the most and makes it most implausible all of his claims about dramatic change. The task for Macron is very clear. If he wants to do anything at the Eurozone level, he has to achieve serious fiscal consolidation. Now, if you combine this plan to nationalise social security with fiscal consolidation, you're going to have a situation which I think is uh, is pretty clear. The French social security system at the moment is very hard to cut because the government doesn't control its budget. Okay, it's, it's separate, it's outside of the government. It's, um, it's funded through these contributions that are made. If you bring that into the government's control, then it will just start to cut social security budgets, you know, as we've seen in the UK. So I think some of these promises that Macron are making, I just don't think are you know, particularly desirable on their own terms. But it is clear that he's the candidate of, of change, I suppose. But the way he's presented himself and the kind of commitments he's made already make that change very, very difficult. So we're going to move on to the UK in a sec, but I want to ask a last question. It's a slightly fake choice, this, but some people say it's just going to be Renzi all over again. But the other person that he reminds me of is Obama. As you said, he's the candidate of change. Is he Renzi or Obama, do you think? I mean, he's neither, obviously, but whatever you think about the Obama presidency, it was a lot more successful than the period when Renzi was trying to reform Italy. I would say he's more Obama than he is Renzi. So you're not super sceptical in that case? I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the sense of expectation, the fact that simply being elected becomes the sort of the, the success story, uh, all of these things have echoes of, of Obama. The mobilisation of people, the focus on bottom-up sort of politics, that has echoes of, of Obama. Renzi, I think, was in some ways more superficial than Macron. But it could be that the big difference after one thing that Obama did succeed in doing under completely different conditions was, and that the nature of the labour force is changing, but unemployment in the United States is now getting down to historically low levels. I know a lot of people have dropped out of the workforce. Were Macron to come anything close to achieving that kind of result, it would be a success. But the French unemployment has been so much higher than... I know, and it's it's structural and for all the reasons that we talked about. I think the answer to who he is, is every French president and every French prime minister since Mitterrand in 1983, that the French are stuck in a loop in which the same problem, essentially, of trying to get more purchase on German monetary power plays itself out over and over again under different presidential candidates and prime ministers, for that matter, and they all come in and they all say they're going to change something and then they, a couple of years in, face the reality that they haven't got things changed and start trying again to reform the French economy and it doesn't work and we're back to square one again. Hugo, final word. 
Macron's aim is to get unemployment at 7%. So we're not talking about American or UK style, but I think that's a realistic prospect. I mean, my hope would be that actually he'd be more of a Roosevelt type of figure where he starts off in the center, but then gets pulled to the left, depending on how the legislative goes. But I think I just wanted to finish on one point, which is I, I think it's a mistake to think that this European situation is completely stuck and we can't do anything about it. There's been huge changes since the crisis already. There's been quantitative easing done by the European Central Bank, which was unheard of before. And of course, I don't know what's going to happen in Germany. And Merkel has been making signs and also shorts about how they're going to continue austerity. I think the degree of that is playing to the legislatives. But I think there is a realization that the German politics, as it's been so far, cannot continue. And I think there is a willingness on the German side to cut a deal with Macron. They're willing to cut a deal with Macron. They wouldn't be unwilling to cut a deal, I think, with anyone else. So I don't think the German situation and the European situation is stuck. And I think in a year's time, things can be unstuck in a way that there was no prospect of it actually working out in the Hollande case. And as always, it's this extraordinary thing that we, we have an election, we get a decisive result, and almost immediately we're waiting on the next election. So now here we are, waiting on the German election. At some point, we're going to have to stop waiting on the results of elections. Someone's going to have to do well, we something. Have the French legislative elections first. Uh, That's that, going to be that. that and that too. And then there's a general election in this country, I believe. So let's talk about that for a little bit. We're going to talk in a second about UKIP because I think it's already clear that the big story of the British general election, certainly coming out of the local election results, is the collapse of support for UKIP and its wholesale transfer into support for the Conservatives. But I just wanted to ask Chris Brook before that, just to connect it back to Macron. And I joked about this a bit earlier. One lesson that everyone's drawing from Macron's victory is that ditch the party, create a movement. Um, This is the time of, never mind flex security, it's time of flexi politics. We can all just kind of find the thing that makes us feel shiny and new. And Peter Mandelson said, well, the obvious lesson of the French election is that the Labour Party is a moribund and dying brand. So jump ship, guys and start a new one. Yes, and the, the Telegraph had a story yesterday about how if Mr Corbyn stays on as leader of the Labour Party after the election, 100 Labour MPs would form a group called the Progressives, so they would literally be rebranding themselves on the model of Borgen, the Danish TV drama about politics. Um, we've had a long time in America now where politicians think they're characters in the West Wing, and now a European drama is looking to influence the way politicians present themselves in this country. So you sound sceptical. Well, I am sceptical, and I think one of the things about British politics is parties are pretty robust. Now, sometimes they aren't, the Labour Party in Scotland, but in a two-party system with first-past-the-post, it's very, very difficult to dislodge parties that are as entrenched as the Conservative and the Labour parties are. The structure of French politics is is different. The parties are looser groupings. And it's a presidential system which allows for a movement. It's a presidential system. There's more factionalism in the Socialist Party. There are the various elephants, the elephants, my favourite piece of political jargon. It's not like that in the United Kingdom. So we may see attempts at rebranding because... When Mr Blair started talking about New Labour and when the Conservative Party then elected Mr Cameron, who was a professional PR guy, we're in a world where people who are good at branding, like Peter Mandelson, can rise to the top of British politics. But what they are rebranding is the old parties, and they 
endure. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So the closest thing probably in British politics to something which we call it a party, but was in some ways a movement, and it was a movement that looks like it really only worked with a particular leader, was UKIP. And UKIP, we don't know for sure, but it certainly looks like if you take the Farage out of UKIP, you kill it. But of course, the other possibility is that when UKIP succeeds in its primary goal, which is to take the UK out of the EU, you kill it. But there is very clear evidence now in the polls and in the actual local election results that UKIP supporters, and it's quite rare for this to happen so quickly and so dramatically that something builds up over time, and they are just deserting in droves. What do we think is primarily driving this? I mean, it is a very dysfunctional party, but it always was. It's just it had a very charismatic leader. Is it basically, be careful what you wish for, they got what they wanted, no one can see the point of them? Or is it that you take Farage out and there's nothing there? I think it is those two things. But I'd also add something else, which was that these were local elections last week. And one of the things about candidates from right-wing movements, whether it's the UKIP or whether it's the British National Party, is there's this pronounced tendency that they win seats on councils in an upsurge of popular enthusiasm. But the people who are elected turn out to be pretty useless. They're not people who are elected because they've got a deep commitment to making the local council run effectively and helping with the problems of local residents. And you had this with the BNP, that very few councillors ever got re-elected, because once they had a record to stand on, the people who vote in local elections do want the councillors to do things, and they turned away. What we saw last week is 140-something UKIP councillors being swept away. My guess is, if you looked at their records, you wouldn't find much there. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which, obviously... There was a general election campaign going on and Theresa May, by denouncing the European Union the day before, did her best to try not just to turn it into a national contest, but an international contest. But a lot of the time when councillors are running through re-election, they are being judged on their record by the local residents who pay at least some attention. If I could go back to something that Michael Gove said on the conversation we had with him a few days ago here. So he was saying that, in a way, the great thing about what we're seeing in the British case relative to the European case is that a conventional centre-right politician and a conventional centre-right party is pulling the extremes of the right back towards the centre. And that that's what you're seeing in this case. As Theresa May hoovers up UKIP support, what she's showing is the strength and the robustness of the British system relative to European systems, in which there is no room now for the far right because the centre ground has co-opted it. Of course, the criticism Theresa May say it's not that she's drawing UKIP supporters into the comfortable Tory fold, but she's taking the Tory party into UKIP territory. And her strongest critics would say she's turning the Tories into a kind of softer version of UKIP. I mean, again, I suspect the truth is a bit of both, but which do you think is the dominant story? I think the 
the difference with the European cases is a bit deeper than, than what Michael Gove was suggesting. It's not just that the British system, for reasons that we've said, because of the electoral system, there's this greater stability. If we take two cases, Italy and France, so the reason for the current state of politics in Italy, where a sort of a new movement slash party has become the biggest in the political scene, the, the five-star five movement, the difference with, say, UKIP is dramatic, but that's born out of a complete collapse of the political system in the early 1990s, a complete collapse, which left an enormous vacuum and took 20 years to work itself out. In the French case, the National Front has been around for decades and has slowly sort of worked its way into the, to the heart of French politics. So I think in the British case, I think it's that the, the challenges to the party system, the moment of complete collapse, the vacuum, the slow-burning right-wing party, none of these things have been there. There's just been these two big parties that have fought against one another. And I think that goes some way to explaining why... UKIP was, you know, successful for a short period, but it's not been that difficult for this big centre-right party to to attract voters back to it. And certainly it is striking, we've talked about this before, that there's thought to be a long-term story about British politics, which is that the two main parties, their vote share is going down over time and other parties' vote share is going up. And so it goes down from a high, a historic high of sort of 85% of voters. But in current polling, if you look at it, if the Tories are polling about 48 and Labour is polling about 28, we're back up to the two main parties having the lion's share of the vote. I think that's correct. And I think there's a parallel here with what happened in the 1970s, because as we were talking about a few weeks ago, the 1974 election is the tipping point, so to speak, of the old system in which the two parties mopped up you know, more than 80% of the vote to it going down to, I think it was, was it under 70%, 68%-ish. Yeah, about two-thirds. Yeah. Of, the, of the vote in the 1974 election. And the tide turned, well, certainly the tide's turned by the time we get to 1979. And what had happened is, is that the Conservative Party in particular had proved adaptable to the crisis of the 1970s, including a lot of discontent about immigration and absorbed it into the Conservative Party. And I think that that gets at a, a bigger sort of strength, if you like, or weakness, depending on which way you want to look at it, of the British way of doing politics, is, is that in the past particularly in the, in the 1960s and ultimately in the 1970s, the two parties in government were able to absorb the discontent of voters about things that became unpopular. And immigration, I think, is the classic example of that. So that you actually had both the Conservatives and the Labour Party in power in the 1960s and 1970s, passing some pretty restrictive immigration legislation, including you know, the Labour government in 1968 stripping British citizenship away from Asians in Africa. And... Once the main parties are responsive to that kind of discontent, they can absorb it. One of the things that happened, I think, post-Maastricht, but particularly post-2004 politics, was the nature of the EU, and particularly the freedom of movement issue, made it very difficult, in fact impossible, for the parties to absorb that kind of discontent. And that's where you get a situation like in 2010, when the Conservatives were promising to reduce immigration to tens of thousands and actually not having any capacity whatsoever in order to do that. And with Britain now leaving the European Union, that safety valve of the two main parties, in this case the Conservative Party, or one of the two main parties, in this case the Conservative Party, is reopened again, and actually that discontent can be absorbed. I should say that was pretty much Michael Gove's argument. Thinking back to what Helen was saying in the earlier discussion of French politics, when she said that there's a cycle here, that presidents and prime ministers come to office promising change and then they realise they can't deliver it, and we're back to square one. I wonder if there's a cycle here with the Conservative Party and its relationship to the most right-wing, we might say, voters in the country, that 
it's true that the Conservative Party is expanding to absorb the UKIP and may very well partly be transformed by that. But what that means is there'll be a livelier, somewhat hard right inside the Conservative Party, and that sets up a different dynamic inside Conservative politics. In recent years, still fairly recent years, we had the Conservative leadership very anxious to purge the Monday Club from the ranks of the Conservative Party, and that was the trouble that just before the 1979 election, Mrs Thatcher gave this interview where she talked about how people were afraid of being swamped by immigrants, and that word swamped was seen as the the dog whistle, the sign going out to people who were thinking of voting for the National Front, that it was safe to vote for the Conservative Party, and the National Front lost 300 deposits at the 1979 election. But the difficulty for the Conservative Party when you absorb the electoral support of so many serious right-wingers is that it creates difficulties inside the party and that sets up a new round of internal party factionalism. And so just as David Cameron had been able basically to close down the Monday Club inside the Conservative Party, it seems likely to me that if the UKIP reinvents itself as the right wing of the Conservative Party, there'll be a new kind of internal party factionalism. I mean, there's one thing that I suppose I would disagree with um, Helen on, and I, Michael Gove as well, is that it's, it's absolutely true that this idea that by leaving the European Union, the Conservative Party is able to regain control over a policy issue such that the reasons for supporting UKIP begin to die away. That's definitely true. However, it's certainly false that immigration figures are driven by membership of the European single market. That's simply not true. They're driven by the British growth model, which is one of an open labour market, very low levels of unemployment, which is good, but very low levels of productivity, low wages. But British growth comes through expanding its labour force. That means net immigration figures that are very high. So if Theresa May wants to bring that down, she has to transition the UK economy into a fundamentally different growth model. If she doesn't do that, she'll never tackle immigration. So I think for the Conservative Party, there's a temporary release, if you like, from the the threat of UKIP, because it gives the impression of having secured control once again over the movement of people. But I think that's only very temporary. I I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just think that the tension between, it's how she manages the tension between being able to formally to claim sovereignty back in relation to EU nationals and then as you say what the demands of the growth model are in terms of actual numbers of immigration and what she I think is wanting to do is to draw a sharp distinction between the sovereignty issue and the numbers issue but not least for the reasons that Chris has articulated is that tension will then be part of Conservative Party politics. We could finish then with a broader historical question of the kind that we like here. So it's true that the two main parties have dominated British politics forever, for more than 100 years, 100 years. And then before that, two other main parties. But smaller parties come and go. They don't often, in the end, get the kind of toehold that would allow them. It's very, very rare that allows them to then aspire to be one of the two main parties. But they do change politics. So the SDP was one, and clearly UKIP are another. And I was thinking about which actually had the bigger impact, and I think it almost certainly was UKIP, in that without the SDP, you still probably can get a scenario where the Labour Party reforms itself. I'm not sure without UKIP that we leave the European Union. Maybe we do. But what was UKIP's fundamental impact in the long run? And there are, I think, two possible headlines that come out of it, one of which is because of UKIP, Britain left the European Union. 
And the other is that what UKIP have done historically is take Labour voters and turn them into Conservative voters. I mean, that seems to be the pattern at the moment. It was thought that UKIP were a threat to the Tories, and it turned out they were at least as big a threat to Labour, and they took votes from Labour. But those voters are not going back to Labour. They are moving over to the Conservatives. And the Conservatives are polling at the moment. It's probably not going to translate into this in the election at these levels, but at extraordinarily high levels, 48%, close to 50%. Which of the two is the the really big difference that UKIP made? I think that the answer is is that the primary effect that of UKIP is to put working class voters back into British politics, and that if you look at what had happened in the nineties and the two thousands, is is that both parties, main parties, had lost interest in working class voters. That they were not ultimately of interest to the Labour Party under New Labour and Tony Blair and they weren't of interest really to the Conservatives under David Cameron's modernisation project. You could you could in one sense think about David Cameron's modernisation project, not entirely, but in part of getting rid of working class and conservatism. And because UKIP ended up mobilising working class voters and showed that there was still a constituency of them that simply weren't prepared to fall in line with one or other of the main parties as things were, is both parties, or at least one party I should say, ended up starting competing for them again. I actually think UKIP's ultimately less important to Britain leaving the EU. I think that probably UKIP speeded up Britain leaving the EU, but that most of the things that were in play in terms of explaining Britain's exit from the European Union, including the manifesto commitments that were there made by David Cameron in 2010, were in play before UKIP began its rise. And it's worth saying, I've heard Nigel Farage say this, and he said it in various different contexts, but what are his core goals in politics? One, Britain to leave the European Union. Two, the return of grammar schools. But three, and I've heard him say this was the one that really drove him, to be a Conservative again. Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell the story... I mean, a member of the Conservative you, you, you Party. You can tell again. the story of what has happened to the Conservative Party in the European Union and Britain's exit from the European Union, essentially around the story that begins with Margaret Thatcher's departure in November 1990 through the Maastricht Treaty, the difficulties that John Major government had with the Maastricht Treaty and the fact that there fundamentally from that point on was not sufficient consent in the Conservative Party for the Conservative Party to remain a pro-European party. Now, it needed certain triggers to bring that to the fore as quickly as it has done, not least, I think, the Eurozone crisis. But I still think that is the dynamic that's been playing itself out and that ultimately UKIP are a kind of side story to that. As I say, speeding things up, yes, because of the fear that they created in a wing of the Conservative Party, particularly in 2013 and 14, but not driving the fundamental dynamics. I don't think UKIP was responsible really for the UK's exit from the EU. When UKIP was focused absolutely on its anti-Europeanism as a party, it got no votes. It was very unsuccessful as a as a specifically Eurosceptic party. As soon as it morphed into more of an anti-establishment movement around the parliamentary expenses scandal, and then it became a party about immigration problems, it became a, a big thing. So I think the, the EU dimension was never really driving UKIP. I don't think it's just a story about Conservative Party politics either. I think there is this much broader connection to the changing state of British society. And yes, if you have a very two-party system, very bipartisan system where people simply refuse to vote for Conservative if they've always voted for Labour, then they will transition perhaps to a third party and then they don't necessarily come back to the original party. And for me, that's what UKIP actually has done. I'm a bit sceptical about that kind of approach. I mean, Helen is right that New Labour lost interest in working-class votes in the 1990s. 
New Labour people were pretty clear that working class voters had nowhere else to go. And the party focused obsessively on appealing to key swing voters in marginal seats. And a lot of working class voters did feel left behind. But you can see that in the thinning out of the Labour vote in 2005, especially. And Labour continues to struggle in 2010. And Labour lost support of key parts of its coalition well before the UKIP was an important phenomenon. So it may be that rather than facilitating the transformation of Labour voters into Conservative voters, in electoral terms, what UKIP did is it obscured the extent to which we were entering a new period of Conservative Party domination, that it was very difficult for the Conservatives to get an overall majority. They failed in 2010, despite a very, very unpopular Labour government. And they were only able to in 2015, when another part of the centre, the Liberal Democrats, collapsed. And what's now very clear is that the UKIP was pulling votes away, not so much from Labour, but from the Conservative Party. And that was what was preventing that party from dominating British government. If you'd like to hear the interviews that we referred to this week with Thomas Piketty, Michael Gove, go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. You can get them on iTunes. If you'd like to receive them automatically, do please subscribe and they will pop up. We're going to try and do some more extra interviews as we lead up to the election and beyond. But we'll be back again in our regular slot next week. We might know what the Comey story really means or we might not know what it really means. And we will continue to look at this, I think it is, fascinating British general election. Do join us then. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.